for our study of the book of Philippians. I've been tasked with introducing the book to you all. It is a sheer joy and at the same time a terror to do so. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 and out of respect to God for his infallible, inerrant, God-breathed, and sufficient word, would you please stand with me as I read the first two verses of this epistle. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would please take a seat and join me in prayer. Lord God, as we just sang of Christ, what gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Christ is my joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, to this I hope we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. For our lives are wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. So as, as we unpack the first two verses of Philippians, oh God, I pray, would you use a feeble man with a feeble mind and a feeble mouth to deliver the very word of God. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, my sermon is simple. The title is Grace and Peace to the Saints in Philippi. Grace and Peace to the Saints in Philippi. At the outset, what you need to know is we are unpacking this. We are reading what is called an epistle. This is a letter. Back in Paul's day, letters had a specific form to their opening. And what I would like to do is just unpack the form of the opening first and then point you in the text where Paul does this, and then we'll dive in. So the standard opening in any letter back in Paul's day was you would start with the author, you would then have the audience, and then you would have a greeting. So author, audience, greeting. And so first in our scenario here, you have the author, Paul. The second thing is the audience, and that's the second line. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then thirdly, you have the greeting, and you see that in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'd like to do in introducing this is we're going to go over author, audience. We are then going to go over what Philippi is. Who, what is this Philippi thing? So we're going to unpack that, what Philippi is. We will then go into the theme, fourthly, and then fifthly, I'll try to drive this into your heart. So that's where we're going. So author. Remember, again, if you forgot it 30 seconds ago, the author of the epistle will always put his name first, 
And our author, therefore, is Paul. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's our author. You see it in verse 1, but the reason why it's Paul and not Timothy, you then see out of verse 3 and verse 4. And I just want to read it, and if you would, scan your eyes down there and look at these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I, my, my, mine, my. This is a singular author. The author is Paul. Now, why Timothy? Timothy is mentioned most likely because he was with Paul in Rome. And probably more importantly, he had been with Paul when the church at Philippi was founded. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So who is Paul? For a description of Paul, I ask you to flip maybe a page or two. And he gives a description of himself in chapter 3. In verse 5, this is what he says about himself. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, he's a Jew. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a studly Hebrew. As to the law, a Pharisee. Oh, such meticulous law-keeping. As to zeal, passion, a persecutor of the church. As to righteous under the law, blameless. Paul was a Pharisee who persecuted the church. That's who he was. And in Acts 9, you'll have to do the legwork on your own. We just don't have time. In Acts 9, what you see there is he is on the way to persecute the church in Damascus, and God wrecks him. He blinds him, he knocks him off his donkey, and he converts him, he saves him, he cleans him, he is washed, he is renewed, he becomes a Christian, he's a new creation in Christ, and that brother goes and gets after it. Paul goes on in Philippians 1.1, and he calls himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. The word servant there is actually doulos in the Greek, and that's better translated as slave. Paul understands who he is. He is a slave of Christ. He is, as it were, in chains, tied to Christ. He is a loyal servant to a royal king. There is submission. There is dependence. And here's the kicker. Paul is writing this in prison. And if you just want to scan down in chapter 1, I don't want to steal anyone else's thunder. I just want to set the stage. If you look in verse 13 of chapter 1 and in verse 14 of chapter 1, you see the word in there twice, imprisonment. He is in jail, most likely in Rome. That my friends, is all in for Christ. That's what it means to be all in. I will be a slave to Christ even if it means my imprisonment. 
okay? All in for Christ isn't wearing a nice t-shirt that says all in for Christ. All in for Christ really, really, really means I'm all in, even if it means prison, even if it means my own death. So a question for you. Imagine you had to start a letter in the same way that Paul did. What would your intro say? Billy Bob, servant of country music. Billy Bob, servant and slave to football, looking good, being cool, being liked. What is it? Secondly, I'd like to look at the audience, and that's the second part of the first verse. You see this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. First of all, I want you to see these are saints. To the saints. Saints. It's a called out one. They are holy. They are set apart. They are not perfectly personally holy. Please get that. They're not perfectly personally holy, but this has absolutely everything to do with the objective reality of who they are in Christ before a holy and righteous God. They are saints before him. Second of all, these are saints in Christ Jesus. And the word means everything. In, in, two letters, huge. The idea behind the in-ness is spiritual union with Christ. When God looks upon you in Christ, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees everything that Christ has done. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ was imputed to us by grace as a gift. Oh, he looks at you and he sees a spotless son. Hallelujah. John Calvin says about this phrase, in Christ. He says, all the riches are in Christ. Hear this, though. Hear this. Calvin, all that has been done for us in Christ is of no value for us if we remain outside of Christ. So some of you, I heard, oh, it's family fun night. Oh, that's so fun. I love family fun night. I can't wait to go to the obstacle course. I love the inflatable obstacle course. I love beating my friends and doing all that fun stuff and jumping over stuff. and Imagine you go to the family fun night. And you're about to cross over the bridge to go onto the practice field and get your face painted and go do the obstacle course. But you never cross the bridge. You just watch from afar. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's a nice face paint. I wish I could have that. And you never cross the bridge. Wow, look at all the fun they're having. Look at that. I bet I could do that too. That looks so fun. But you never cross the bridge. And you never go in. Oh, hear Christ calling you. Come in. Come in. 
Know me, love me, worship me, come in. Third, these are saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Overseers are elders, they lead the church. Deacons are those who primarily serve the church. So those are the offices of the church. So this is also, this is a letter written to a church. Plain and simple. So what we have here is a letter written to saints who are in union with Christ, along with the leaders and servants of a church who are in a specific city named Philippi. And to understand the letter just a bit better, we need to understand Philippi. So let's dive into Philippi a little bit. Philippi, just generally what you need to know about it, it is, it's a special city. It was was won by military conquest by Antony. It was founded then by Antony. Antony, sorry, Mr. Mankin. Um, And then it was re-founded by Augustus. And that was huge, absolutely huge. Because it was re-founded by Augustus, it was given special status. It exempted Philippi from taxation. It gave them privileges of land ownership. And so even though Philippi If you were to go to Philippi and say, hey, where's Philippi? It's in modern-day Greece, which is not Italy, which is not where Rome is. But the people of Philippi considered themselves Roman, Italian. I am a Roman. It was also on a very important commercial road. And and you need to hear this. This is so important because it comes up again in chapter 3. They were proud Romans, proud, proud of their Roman citizenship, proud to be a Roman, where at least I know I'm free. Okay, they were so proud to be a Roman. Now that's the city. I want to emphasize now the church within the city or the city within the city. For Paul, this church held special significance. And what I'm going to pull from here is from Acts 16, which you can read on your own and check it. So you have some homework. This is the first church he founded in Europe. He was sent there by way of a vision of a man of Macedonia calling Paul to this task in Macedonia. The first convert in Europe was Lydia, who is a seller of purple goods. She's down there at the hour of prayer and God opens up her heart so that she would hear the, the, the scripture. She was converted. It then says that she persuaded the men to stay with her and from her house, it sounds like, they then did ministry in Philippi. And so, Timothy was with him. You can see that at the beginning of chapter 16. Silas is with him. You can see that also in the beginning of chapter 16. Obviously, Paul is there. And then fourthly, Luke is there because uh, about halfway through Acts 16, you go from the third person to first person plural, we, us. Luke's involved as well. Paul and Silas were in prison there for exercising a demon from a fortune-telling girl. But God miraculously delivered them, and they proclaimed the gospel to the Philippian jailer who was converted along with his household. 
and I forget the pastor that, that said it. I'm sure Pastor Charles knows he might yell it out at me. But in washing his wounds, he was washed. That's the Philippian jailer. This is a church also who gave to Paul on a regular basis, supplied many of his needs. And as we go through this letter, I hope what you see is Paul's loving pastoral heart for this church. Oh, he loves this church. Flip ahead, if you will, to Philippians 4.1. I just want to give you a taste of this. Again, not to step on somebody else's toes. And you're just going to see a tender example of pastoral care. Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. He's in jail and he wants to get there so bad. He gets there or he, he talks about it in Philippians 2. I long to be with you. My joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is language fathers use for their daughters. You are my crown. You are my beloved. I love you. You are my special baby. I don't care if she's three or if she's 25. You feel the same way, fathers to their daughters. Now, men with their sons, we just want to beat them up. Different. But that's the sort of love that Paul had for this church. Uh, flip back now to Philippians 2, and I want to give you the reason for the letter. This isn't the theme yet, sorry. I just want to give you the reason for the letter. Why, why, why did this letter come about? And again, apologies, I think it's Nick Orduna who's going to be preaching through this, so I really apologize if I destroy his sermon. Um, here's the reason. Uh, Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippians with a gift. You see that in verse 25. So he was sent as a minister of Paul's need. Epaphroditus got gravely ill. And the church heard he was ill. And that distressed Epaphroditus greatly. And, and we, oh man, there's an entire sermon on that as well as to what, what the nature of the distress was. But just know Epaphroditus was distressed and that's, that's remarkable. God spared Epaphroditus. It sounds like he healed him miraculously. So Paul then sends Epaphroditus with this letter to the church at Philippi so that the Philippians might rejoice and give him a hero's welcome. You see that near the end of that chapter. And that's why the letter is here. Now, what's the theme of the letter? So let's answer that quickly. There is no explicit theme, unfortunately. It's, he doesn't say, I am writing to you so that. So there's no explicit theme. So you have to kind of figure it out as we go along. But the two main threads I want you to see are, first, this is a letter of deep encouragement. Super encouragement. Second, it is a letter of magnificent joy. Oh, oh, joy, 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 joy. First, encouragement. Let's, let's unpack that. Let's figure that out. Paul desires them to live lives not merely as Roman citizens, but as citizens of heaven. Romans, or not Romans, sorry. Uh, Philippians 3.20. They are to serve the Lord and each other with Christ as chief example, but also Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
He wants them to progress in their faith. He wants them to press on to know the Lord, for there are false teachers about. Second theme, joy. Forms of the word joy occur 16 times in this letter. Remember, repetition is important. Repetition is important. Repetition is important. Repetition is important. They don't have bold. They don't have underline. They don't have italics. They don't have font types that you can make big. Repetition. 16 times in this short letter. So let's draw it to a close in this way. Why joy, Paul? Why joy? You're in prison. He's in prison. In case you forgot that. And his epistle brims with encouragement and joy. Oh, how the Christian can be joyful despite the circumstances. It's amazing. So why joy, Paul? The answer is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. This is where I have to challenge you. I have to challenge myself as I was preparing this. Sometimes we can become so dull of hearing because of what is so familiar to us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ho-hum, heard that all before. Is it second period yet? No, it's almost third period by the time he's going to be done. Oh, what's for lunch? Oh, pizza. Oh, pizza. I can't wait for pizza. Ho-hum. Grace and peace. No, 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 no. Every single word in the Bible is there for a specific reason. Every single word. Grace, the free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. God is now for you, having acted in grace toward you on the basis of the death of Christ. The storyline of the Bible, folks, is from a human perspective is that we have been made for a relationship with God. We, however, choose and have chosen to live our lives without him. And we live instead as enemies of God. And God is not indifferent to this fact. We are alienated from him. We are alienated twofold. I am alienated from God because of my sin, and he is alienated from me because of his righteous wrath. The mystery of this grace that is in Jesus Christ is that God reconciles repentant sinners to himself. Jesus did not come into this world to try to tell us what to do so that we could become Christians and make ourselves Christians. He came instead to save us and to reconcile us to a holy God. The story is not, oh, clean up your act and God might have a place for you. The story is that you were completely unable to clean yourself up and God reached down in grace and in mercy and picked you up and washed you off and raised you up and made you new and set you free. That's grace, folks. That's remarkable. That is awe-inspiring. That is grace and peace, harmony, 
wholeness. Salvation of the person and reconciliation with God. This is peace at the deepest level. This is peace you can rest in like your favorite pillow. This is good. This is rest. This is tranquility for your weary soul. Oh, drink deeply from this fountain of delight. And it is grace and peace from God who is the ultimate source of all good. He's our, he's our Father. There's intimacy with Him. And, and it's also from Christ who is the source also of all of these blessings. Oh, Christians, do you see do you see, do you hear, do you see what being in Christ is for you? Grace from the Father and the Son and peace from the Father and the Son. Unmerited favor, a peace that you can sleep on like a pillow. Assured, not in you, but in God. What a remarkable gift. Oh, no, but if you are not in Christ... Might I re I'm going to rewrite the second verse. If you are not in Christ, I want you to hear this clearly. Second verse reads this way. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not in Christ, hear this. Curses and judgment and relentless or sorry, in restlessness and sorrow and unending guilt and shame forever from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mike, the stark reality of that statement in the amazing, glorious, awesome reality of what grace and peace mean cause you to have your mind stirred by a holy and righteous God, one to whom you all must give an account to. And might you have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a will to submit to God, and, and, a, and a repentant heart to cry out for mercy and grace with an empty hand of faith and receive from God justification and life and everything. It's my plea to you. It's my plea. But for Christians in the room, let me remind you of precious reality. And I steal this from a guy named Dustin Benj. Number one, our God is sovereign. Number two, our Savior is alive. Number three, our sins are forgiven. Number four, our hope is secured. Number five, our Lord is returning. Believers should be the most joyful people on earth. And might I ask you, Christians, in the deep recesses of your heart, who needs to be reminded today of the encouragement that is found only in Christ? Who needs to be reminded today of a joy that is inexpressible because of the shed blood of Christ? And my question for you is, when will you get to the business of doing that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, words fail. Words fail to recognize the gift that is Christ. We, we say grace, and we don't even understand what it means. We say peace, and we don't even understand what it means. The deep recesses in our soul where anxiety still 
festers. Oh, there is peace there for the Christian. Oh, when we are weighed down by sin, maybe even sin we committed this morning, maybe even sin we're committing right now in chapel. Oh, there is grace for that. There is mercy for that. Oh, might we rest in that. And so, Father, I pray, might we be those who take after the Apostle Paul in encouragement and in joy. And might we be those who encourage one another to this lifelong race and fight of faith. Thank you for Jesus Christ who made this all not only possible, but made it actual in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I don't, sorry, Mr. Heckerby.